My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. So hello and welcome What The Finances to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. Uh, so on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Henry Sanderson, who's an executive editor for Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and author of the upcoming book, Vault Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green, uh, which is releasing on the 28th of July in the UK and early September this year in the US. So Henry, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. So I guess my first question is, what was your influence for writing the book? So my influence for writing the book was um, I moved back from from living in China uh, for about seven years, back to London in 2014. um, And I joined the Financial Times to write about commodities. Um, And at that time, um, there was actually a a bit of a crash in in Chinese um, commodities and equity market. And people were talking a lot about the sort of old model of uh, China's, you know, industrialization, sort of commodity supercycle being over. Um, but at that time, there wasn't really the sense of what was next. And then through my reporting, I worked out that, wait a second, yeah, okay, maybe the old model's over, but there's all this, there's this transition to, to clean energy that China and the rest of the world wants to make. Um, and this too will require lots of commodities, um, you know, and demand is going to start to rapidly increase for these commodities. So what are these commodities? What are these materials? Um, and who controls them? And I uncovered this sort of hidden supply chain um, that when I finally became an EV driver, bought an electric vehicle for our family, I felt like I was sitting on top of um, a battery full of stories, right, which which I'd helped to sort of uncover. Yeah, it's fascinating. I guess if we look at, yeah, early 2000s, to 2010, really most of the commodity demand was from China. You know, I don't yeah. know the exact statistics, but what, 50% of copper almost was going to China and all, and all these crazy amounts. So I guess yeah. you're seeing potentially in the future transitioning away from China being the main driver for demand to the West. Is that, yeah? Yeah, so you're right. So the commodity super cycle was completely China and, and the amounts were colossal, right? So that China was consuming, you know, 40% of the world's copper, um, you know, 50% of a lot of metals and obviously iron ore, huge amount of iron ore, you know, is making Australia very rich, but it was totally a China sucking in just a lot of these old commodities. Um, so yeah, so the clean energy transition is is a global one. And, and that's the difference is that, you know, politicians in the West, um, across the world have made commitments, net zero commitments, commitments for electric vehicles. So this is a totally global um, transition. So th- is completely different to that sort of China-centric uh, model. Because during that period when China was consuming so much, Western economies' consumption was was going down and was flat, right? So um, it was totally China. Um, but now it's, it's global. But what's interesting is China is quite far ahead of the West in, in these supply chains and uh, raw materials. Yeah, and I guess we'll get to that a little bit later. So, yeah. what what are the materials and the rare earth materials that will be vital in the future? I think we've mentioned a few copper and a few, other, but what yeah. are the other ones? Yeah, so it's interesting. So, it's quite a broad spectrum of uh, materials, but what I focus on in the book um, is the battery ones. Um, so, lithium, um, nickel, uh, cobalt, um, the ones I focus on in the book. Um, but in a battery, you also have uh, graphite. Um, which is used in the anode of a battery. Um, and then copper is used in, uh, in the battery as well. And aluminium is used um, 
as well. So th- these are all materials that are going to, uh, you know, increase a lot. And then when you look at the electric motor, um, you know, which actually, you know, is where is how the car drives. That needs uh, a lot of time, rare earth um, elements. Um, you know, this is a group of sort of elements with funny names, um, which which China controls. So you need that for the electric motor. And then um, for solar panels, you you need aluminium. Um, you need things like polysilicon um, and wind turbines. Again, a lot of them do use rare earth magnets and they use lots of copper as well. So that's the sort of broad um, suite of materials. Yeah. And I, I think my concern has always been like, do we have enough of these materials to actually go 100% renewable? And I guess as well with the, some of the intermittent energy produ- producers that you mentioned there, like solar and wind, where you have to store them in batteries. Yeah. I know it's very hard to predict, but do you think we'll be able to do that or do you think we'll need lots of recycling to maybe? Yeah, it's a good, yeah. It's a good point. One, I get asked a lot. And, and I don't think the shortage is that there's not enough in the Earth's crust. Like, there's enough of all these things. The question is, do you know the investment needed to, to build these projects and, and do we have the, the will to, um, to build mines, to, to, to deal with some of the environmental trade-offs um, needed is a is a question of you know will uh, you know money and will you know can we get the money to invest in these projects can we withstand some of the environmental um, impacts and then you mentioned recycling recycling um, thank goodness is is occurring um, you know uh, from the very beginning in a lot of cases so so we're seeing recycling being built up now so by mid-century, um, you know, perhaps recycling will take up such a big portion of, of supply that we won't need so much fresh mining. But from now until then, we're going to need um, a lot more mining. Yeah, and I guess the real challenge will be the next five to 10 years. Because as, as you mentioned, it's not only the will, it's actually the time that it takes to get these mines online. So, yeah. yeah, you need lots of capital. And that's one thing China's been very good at is, is raising capital. But you need lots of capital. Um, and then also there's the processing of these minerals I mean, it's energy intense. Um, it can be dirty. You know, we've been happy just to leave this kind of industry to China um, and close our eyes, right? The whole sort of period of globalization was about closing our eyes, right, and offshoring. Um, but now, you know, we've got to reassure some of these industries. Um, we've got to build a lot of these things from scratch. So, yeah, the minerals are there, um, but we need to construct um, the whole infrastructure for getting them out of the ground, processing them and turning them into the finished product. One of the challenges I think with oil is it actually hasn't been like a supplier, but it's been the refining it into yeah. the finished product. And from what I understand, China does the majority of that for these rare metals and these batteries. So is that really maybe this going to be the bottleneck in the future and what we need to onshore more to yeah. Western countries? I think that's right because um, you know Australia obviously is a mining country, Canada is a mining country, um, you know even the US used to be a mining country. Um, Africa, there's lots of mines. You know, in a sense, the West has experience building mines. We can build these mines. But but what's the point sometimes if you build a mine and you're sending the material to China um, to be processed? China, you know, ends up controlling the most valuable part of the supply chain, right? Processing the material. And then, uh, hey, presto, there's a guy down the road who can also turn that material into a car, battery. Um, you know, so they they capture that high-value bit of the supply chain. So, you know, we want to build that bit of the supply chain um, in the West. But the question is, what's it going to cost? We have no experience doing it. And we have to do it in a low carbon way. 
right to meet um to meet our requirements so these are huge uh challenges and that's why i think overall we're going to see um you know green inflation or you know costs of these things are going to go up as we um reshore them but if we're moving into a a world where we don't want a dependence on china we don't want a strategic dependence on china we're going to have to bear the costs right and things are going to get more expensive there's going to be uh, as i say green inflation green inflation right things are going to cost more yeah cuz uh, yeah i'm probably getting this stat out of nowhere <laughs> like like a lot yeah. of people do but is, isn't it close to 90% of uh i think the processing of the materials ha- occurs in china or yeah so um, I've, yeah so i actually got this um statistic with me so let's say um you know lithium around 60 percent uh processed in china uh nickel similar cobalt 80 percent um but things like graphite is almost 100 percent um in china um so you know and, and the same as like for cathode and anode which are the battery materials it's 60 um 80 percent in china so it's not that china is you know, blessed with huge amounts of amazing lithium or huge amounts of amazing cobalt. Um, you know, China mines like 1% of the cobalt. It's mostly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but it processes um, these minerals. And the advantage I'm saying that gives them is that you have cluster effects, right? If you have them being processed in China, then another company sets up that turns them into cathode and anodes, and then battery producers set up, right? And you have clustering effects where you're all you're all together so china captures that part of supply chain and then what china is trying to do now is make electric vehicles um, and export those to the world right so this is this is critical technology um for china yeah it's, it's very fascinating and in the book you sort of mentioned how there's a link between you know remote mines in the congo which you mentioned there and chile's yeah. i think it's Atacama Desert, yeah, yeah. yeah, to giant Chinese battery factories, shadowy commodity traders, secretive yeah. billionaires, you know, new yeah. generation <laughs> of scientists. So it's got the lot. So I guess, you know, who are the major players uh, that people yeah, should so be aware of? It's exactly what you said, right? So Chile and Australia are two big lithium producers at the moment. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo dominates in cobalt. Glencore um, is the world's biggest producer, um, followed by a Chinese company. Um, nickel is a sort of Indonesian story. I have, I have a chapter about that in my um, book. And, and graphite, as I said, is, is a China story. So, um, you know, what's missing here is sort of Europe and, and the US. But, but I do talk about steps in Europe to, to, to build a supply chain. We have a Northvolt, Swedish company, that built a big battery factory in Sweden. Um, and then I talk a bit about lithium in Cornwall, right? Cornwall used to be a huge mining area for hundreds thousands of years so there's also lithium there so um you know there are all these characters but there are new ones emerging yeah and it will just be you know new technology able to get that material out of the ground basically and, and then build supply chains that can you know mean that we can basically get to the end product yeah. in the uk or in the us or all these other countries yeah so that's a, that's a fundamental question at the moment which is that um and it's a difficult question which is you know, Europe and, and the US sometimes, or they used to think, or oh, maybe we'll just um, leapfrog China by inventing a new technology, a new battery technology or a new lithium extraction technology. Um, but it's very hard to do that and scale it up, right? And while you're doing that, maybe you're missing out on the scaling up of the existing technology, which is what China is doing so well. So I think the West needs to do both, right? We shouldn't just sit back and go, oh, we've got great universities. We've got great professors. They, they've come up with, you know, great new battery tech. Let's just focus on that. 
no, we need to build like the existing technology now. Otherwise, we're not going to have an auto industry supply chain. Otherwise, we're not going to have the jobs. And at the same time, work on the future technology. Because a lot of these battery chemistry breakthroughs, they're great in the lab, you know, but can you scale them up, you know, and they have their own supply chains. Like, what, what does that look like? Um, that's the point I make in the book is that sometimes solutions, you know, technical solutions, they may offer to solve one raw material constraint at the moment, but they might have their own supply chains that we also need to, to focus on. Yeah, it's such a complex system. And as you mentioned, there's not just yeah. one commodity. There's so many commodities going into these batteries to then be able to, yeah. you know, keep, help us transition to renewables yeah. and EVs. So one of the chapters in the book is actually talking about the nickel problem. And I think you yeah. mentioned there that uh, it's really an Indonesia story. So I'm not sure yeah. if you can go further into that. Yeah, so it's super interesting because um, Indonesia has become like a nickel colony of, of China. Um and, and, and what's happened basically is nickel has the world's largest, um, you know, reserves, resources of nickel. Um, so obviously, you've got to go there for the nickel. But the, the government, um, the politicians have been quite clever in that they've wanted not just to export, um, you know, nickel, like some, you know, like the Congo exports cobalt. They want to add the processing and the, and the value add in Indonesia. And Chinese companies have sort of answered this call feverishly. You know, they've, they've signed up. To this in a big way they built these huge um industrial parks in indonesia which are you know processing the nickel that's dug up um but it's all very energy intensive and indonesia relies on coal for 60 percent of its electricity so we're creating this sort of environmental uh, you know possible nightmare there you know where you've got so much industry which is what indonesia wanted yes but how do you how do you clean it up right because this stuff is going to end up in electric vehicles. Um, so it's it's a really interesting situation where China, in a sense, has offshored um, some of its dirty industry to Indonesia. It's part of, you know, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road. Um, but, you know, what's the legacy going to be if it, if it destroys the environment? You know, and Xi Jinping wants the Belt and Road to be a green Belt and Road now, right? Wants to stop building coal-fired power plants overseas. But these things are just super, super energy intensive. They're huge furnaces. Um, they need lots of energy. So it's a huge challenge. How do you how do you green that part of the, the supply chain? But but you know, I write in my book, like geopolitically, um, you know, overall in the book, geopolitically, what we're seeing is a set of new countries um come to prominence in the clean energy age. And Indonesia is going to be one of those, right? Because it's, it's, it's adopted this policy of trying to attract um, industry and, and, and value add, right? It wants to build batteries as well. So that's one that's an example, right, of one of these key countries. Um, Chile is another, Australia is another. Um, so it's kind of interesting watching the shifting sort of geopolitics of it as well. Yeah, and, and from, from what it sounds like, they're almost like, you know, we don't care who we deal with. We just want the investment to help our country. Is that sort of how they Well, act? no, or- I mean, Indonesia doesn't, you know, it's trying to hedge it doesn't want to be completely beholden to China um, and it wants to hedge its bets. And it's been quite vocal in wanting Tesla to come to Indonesia to, to mine for nickel, to set up a battery plant, to do what it can in Indonesia. You know, it doesn't want to be completely um, beholden to China. But then on the other hand, you know, Chinese companies have invested billions and billions of dollars. Do you think China is going to sit back and let Indonesia just, you know, screw them over? You know, there's going to be political influence there for sure. Yeah, definitely. Are there any other major sources of nickel or is it mainly just Indonesia? Uh, so Indonesia's um, the biggest at the moment. There's, um, you know, Canada is is a big producing uh, source of nickel. 
and Russia, um, such an interesting story at the moment, because Russia's a big producer of nickel, and Europe was going to rely on this nickel for its um, electric vehicles until the war in Ukraine. And Vladimir Putanin, who's Russia's second richest man, he he owns um, the biggest nickel producer in Russia, which is a whopping great big nickel producer, and he's just been sanctioned by the UK. So there's big questions, you know, is that Russian nickel ethically acceptable now, right? Um, you know, will it go to China? What's going to happen to it is a sort of big, big question. But it raises for the West this problem of, you know, we thought we could rely on um, Russian nickel, but we can't, you know. And Western politicians are now saying, well, can we rely on on China, right, which is a far bigger problem to to overcome. Yeah, that's a challenge because a lot of it, you know, the materials aren't in Europe or, you know, I'm guessing North North America does have some, but it's not enough for everyone. But yeah, it's really the challenge of like meeting its own meeting its own needs, and you know, the lesser of both evils. I think that's what we've found. We've seen with oil in the past 30, 40 years, yeah. choosing the lesser of both evils, and I guess unfortunately might be what we see with these materials as well in the future. Yeah, I think what's I mean geopolitically it's interesting because what's going on is um, the US and the Allies they're trying to create. Um, a separate, um, you know, decouple from China and create a sort of um, separate supply chain, you know, friend shoring, they're calling it, or ally shoring, you know, where, oh, like, okay, let's, let's, um, Australia, Canada, um, you know, you can mine the raw materials, South Korea, you know, Japan, you can process it into battery materials, then we can build the batteries and the EVs um, in America, you know, they're trying to create this separate um, supply chain. Um, so, you know, maybe that that can be successful, but for sure the costs are going to go up um, if you try and do that. Yeah, and I guess what you know, because they're all trying to, everyone's trying to do it at the same time as well. That's just going to further exacerbate the issue. And so, do you think we could see maybe continued inflation due to the need for these commodities and just a supply shortage? Yes, I think I think I think we will do, and I think um, something like lithium, you know, you know, we need a lot more investment um, in supply. Um, and and I think you know, but I but I do preface that with saying you know, obviously we could be entering a global recession, right? So perhaps slightly all bets are off if we plunge into um, you know recession. But if if demand continues um, for electric vehicles with clean en- for clean energy, you know, we're going to need a lot more um, of these materials. Um, and you've got to take into account the more renewables you put on the grid, solar, wind. You're going to need. Um, energy storage um, as well to help smooth out the sort of intermittency, help integrate them better um, into the grid. So you need, need a lot of batteries, going to need a lot of these um, materials. So I think it's looking, we do need a lot more investment in, in supply. Do you see it? Do you, do you see it? People understanding that and it's shifting towards that way? Or? Yeah, I see. I see a huge amount of um, interest now um, in this sector and, and a huge amount, and not a huge amount, but there's capital going into this sector, right? Um, and that's that's what we need. And we haven't even seen, you know, the big oil companies coming in really yet, or, or other big players like that who who could come in. Yeah, and, and that would be massive. So, you know, yeah. I, I think a few months ago we saw there was a bit of an issue with uh, London Metals Exchange and it can yeah. nickel trades, which um, you know, has obviously caused quite a lot of controversy. Do you see that potentially becoming an issue in the future for especially for these commodities where there is a shortage for them yeah so that's a good question i mean i i think the london metal exchange um you know was 
was a, a classic case of you know this war in um, Ukraine. A lot of people didn't didn't think um, Russia would invade, right? And and I think the pervading uh, insight in in China was they wouldn't they wouldn't do it. And because U.S. and U.K. intelligence were saying they were going to do it. Um, perhaps China thought, oh, that's just, they're just scaring people or, you know, it's not reliable or whatever. Um, so I think what happened in the LME is this big Chinese um, nickel producer, Qingshan, had a big short position on, uh, which was correct because he could see all this supply coming in Indonesia that I've talked about because he was part of that um, supply process. But he didn't predict that, that Russia would would invade, which shot, which pushed nickel prices up because um because as i said russia is a big producer right and then the other issue is that to settle um trades on the lme it's a physical exchange you can't deliver a lot of um nickel into the lme it has to be approved uh forms so what Qingshan had to end up doing was produce metal in indonesia and swap it with another chinese company state-owned chinese company that was approved to deliver metal um into the lme and it's wound down um, its trade. But what's so fascinating about this is um, the LME halted trades um, in the middle of this, which is completely unheard of for an exchange to do, right? You just don't do that because you become completely untrustworthy. Um, you know, how can you cancel trades um, like that? And the speculation is it was done to help this uh, Chinese company. And, you know, let's not forget the LME is owned by the Hong Kong um, Stock Exchange. You know, they, they bought out the LME and took it over. A few years ago, so you know, are we, are we seeing um, some of some of this power being exerted? I don't know the answer, but I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, it looks like we're almost going to see uh, sort of limit up and limit downs potentially in commodities, like we've seen in stock markets as well. Just because there have been some crazy movements within days, you know, going up hundreds of percent. So I guess that yeah. might be something that we see. Yeah, we're going to see more volatility in commodities for sure. Um, and, and also a lot of um, commodities yeah. are, are, are traded um, a lot in China. I mean, this is something I witnessed um, over the last 10 years, which is you know, commodity trading in China has really taken off amongst retail investors. Um, there's a lot of speculation going on. So volatility is really um, becoming, a, becoming a big thing. And then you add in logistics issues, uh, right, that we've, we've had with COVID, et cetera, um, also, a big important factor is climate change, which, you know, for instance, we saw floods in um, Durban, South, uh, South Africa, which is where a lot of the cobalt gets exported from the DRC. That's a classic example. You know, we're going to see more extreme weather events, um, which are going to impact um, supply chains for commodities, which is going to be a huge factor. Yeah. So you have to keep, keep an eye on all these different factors. So yeah. Henry, th- thank you so much for your time today. And I guess my last question is, uh, what is one influence or what is one message sorry, you want people to take away from your book? I think one message um, that I want people to take away is like this green world doesn't come for free. Right. And I think people have an idea that, you know, it's just a matter of putting solar panels up or, or buying a um, a drink that says it's carbon neutral or, or making an easy shift in, in lifestyle. But it's a fact of building whole new um, infrastructure that's often dirty, that comes with trade-offs that can impact people, you know, thousands of miles away around the world. So th- we want to we wanna go green, but it's not, it's not an easy um, process. And we shouldn't close our eyes to the supply chains behind the goods that, that we use, right? And we shouldn't be um, persuaded by greenwashing or, or marketing, you know, let's 
let's get out into the world and realize what's what's going on behind this uh, shift to clean energy. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's just being realistic with the goals rather than, you know, it's good to have this ideology, but just being realistic as well and understanding what's actually happening, I think is vital. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, Henry, thank you so much. So we've mentioned Thanks the book is me. releasing uh, later Thanks this month. Yeah. yeah, where where can people buy that? And I guess if they want to keep uh, up to date with you. Yeah, you can work. buy it on, um, you know, any, any, any good bookshop um should have it um you know i recommend bookshop.org which supports local booksellers um but most bookshops should have it please please ask them if they don't um and uh yeah feel free to email me with any questions yeah perfect do you, do you publish any work anymore or online uh yeah so so i do i've been doing some some work uh freelance work um so yeah you can you can follow me on twitter as well Oh, yeah, the best place. Okay, Henry, thanks again. All right, cheers. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.